welcome back or welcome to the Humans of Triathlon or Hot podcast where we bring you the ordinary but extraordinary world of triathlon one human one story at a time with the aim to inspire and to celebrate this life-changing sport and its humans through real authentic raw and enjoyable conversations with humans of triathlon from around the globe and from all walks of life Hello humans of triathlon this is Swapnil Chauhan here speaking from Melbourne Australia with my co-host Carlos aka Charles Hunk from London UK it is just the two of us today we are still in the process of finding a new co-host we've received a ton of applications and we're still going through all of them right now so yeah thank you to everyone who showed interest and applied and we should pick someone in the next week or so But yeah, for today me and Charles and as always we are joined by an amazing human of triathlon this time all the way from Portugal. So Charles I'll leave it to you to introduce him. All right, so welcome to see another season 2 episode of Humans of Triathlon. Today we have our guest actually Sobniel is from Scandinavia, but he's the very first one from this country, just Finland. It's a country that actually I only know three things about. Now, so number one, Kimi Raikkonen is a one-time Formula One world champion. You also have Finnair, the very cheap flights to Asia on very nice Airbus 350s, <laughs> and Helsinki's airport, which, due to its three-character identifier, it is also known as Hell. So today, from an injured runner, this guy has gone all the way to top ten national triathlete and full-time coach. Also. He's the host of the top-rated triathlon podcast, a podcast whose name reminds me of that famous early '90s TV show where Hollywood celebrities like Ashton Kutcher or Mila Kunis became famous from. You Not know, that '70s show. Do you remember it? So, if it reminded me of that '70s show, and this is a podcast about triathlon, you can do the math on your own on the real podcast name. I mean, it's a no-brainer. And finally, our guest today quickly realized. that there were places in the world with better weather suited for triathlon than back home and much better cuisine so he made a move very recently and dear listeners i think he chose wisely so please welcome mr michael erickson welcome michael Fa- thank you thank you so much guys and uh, I-, i don't think i need to do an interview because that that will basically sums it up perfectly <laughs> <laughs> oh we have a lot to ask you <laughs> <laughs> So we caught you in between apartment moves, didn't we? Have you settled down yet? Um, just about. Uh, yeah, I don't have internet yet in my new apartment, so I'm streaming oh. mo- mobile data here. So I'm hoping they will be strong enough for for this interview. Oh dear! But yeah, I, I got my microphone set up at least. So that that's the first priority when I move to a new apartment. <laughs> cool. All right. So unlike your podcast, which is more of a training and scientific centered one. Oh, here on Humans of Triathlon, we're all about the stories, right? We're about storytelling. So, before we get into the more sciencey training stuff that you're more passionate about, how about you talk to us about how you entered this world of endurance sport? Yeah, uh, I'd love to. Thanks. So, so I was playing football or soccer growing up through my childhood and and teenage years, and then. Uh, grew up in a small community in uh, actually on an island that belongs to Finland, but is Swedish speaking. So I'm Swedish is my first language. Oh, interesting. Uh, which is why you might also recognize that my name is more more Swedish than than Finnish, uh, definitely. Absolutely. So, but but I moved to Helsinki or Hell as you call it <laughs> <laughs> when uh, when I started university, and and that's when I I stopped playing football and started partying instead. So uh, I just thought that well I. Need to do something to keep the the party, uh, the party weight off just a little bit. So I started to to run recreationally. I, I had actually done I think one marathon just for fun before that during my football years, but and I didn't really run seriously. I just did a project here and there where I would train for a marathon, and and then I would stop running for a couple of months or two or three months, and and then start training for the next one. So so nothing too serious, but then hold on, hold on. So while you were playing football, you're just doing marathons randomly. Uh, just one, just the one. But yes, 
Oh, just one? Yeah. But did you, did you like train for that one or was it just... A little bit. I, I did like, I would say, five long runs and, and then maybe a couple of other runs. So so I, I, I ran like two or three times per week for the last maybe six or seven weeks before the marathon and then I did my football training. And I tried to get in those long runs, so went up to 25 or 28 kilometers or so. How was that? How did that event go? Uh, so nothing, <laughs> nothing fast. Yeah, it was three uh, fifty-six. Uh, I was seventeen, so I was le- not uh, not legally allowed to enter that marathon because you needed to be eighteen. Oh, uh, but uh, yeah, I, I just faked my my age on the on the entry form. <laughs> so so I was allowed to. And then the whole reason that I did that was that uh, one of my friends he had done. He was my age, and he had done that marathon the year before. So already when he was sixteen and. And and he was going to do it again, and I I couldn't let him like do it and me not doing it at all. First of all, I wanted to do it if he had done it, and second of all, I wanted to beat him, and and I managed to do both. <laughs> but but three fifty six, I mean that, that's not a like as as you can hear, I'm I'm not a super talented endurance athlete by any means. Still, it's nothing to sneeze at, you know, just without much training and seventeen years old. So like, how did you feel during that event? Was it like was it an exhausting one? Did you just get through it, or was it more of a comfortable sort of it, it was actually a pretty exhausting yeah i i definitely was walking uh walking downstairs backwards and, and that sort of thing for several days after and yeah <laughs> it, it was exhausting can't imagine so, so universities i mean school kids they fake their ids to get into clubs and stuff you faked your id to get into a marathon <laughs> yeah <laughs> that's yeah. pretty interesting <laughs> all right so take us from there yeah so so then uh, but then when i started university and stopped playing football I just did a bit more running, but just you know, four four runs per week or so, and nothing, nothing too crazy. Maybe I I would pick it up a little bit when I had a marathon coming up, but but very recreationally, and but slowly but surely I I got faster, but nothing nothing super crazy or anything like that. And it was only when I had been like three or four years at university that I really started to actually think that hey, I actually really really enjoyed this, and I was getting more and more like slowly hooked into that whole thing. I wasn't like, it, it wasn't like the greatest love of my life at, at first sight with, with running, mm-hmm. but, but then, but slowly but surely it grew on me and, and I got more and more serious about it. And, and then I started training properly at some point, I guess I was maybe 23 or something, 22, 23, and, uh, and started having some, uh, some pretty good results. And that's when I did my first sub three and then I did a 250 uh, not long after that. And uh, and one nineteen half and things were going well, but then I got injured, as you do. Uh, my <laughs> knee started acting up, and that's when I when I started to uh, do some cross training while I was rehabbing and swimming and and cycling for cross training, and and ended up since that injury kept me out for a long time from from running, as it turned out. Uh, during that summer when after a few months of, of cross training i decided to well i might just as well do some sprint triathlons now that i'm doing the swim and the bike training i didn't really do any run training for that but i, I did those races and and my knee always hurt a lot after those races but but i, I just needed some some target events to mm. to go for so i figured it was worth the sacrifice of, of a little setback so you were injured but you said, you know, I need to try to get magically out of this injury by doing triathlons. Sort of, yeah, yeah. I know it, it's not, uh, I guess, the the smartest thing. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, but to be fair, I, d- I didn't do a lot of those triathlons, and they were only sprint distances. So and and I didn't do any run training. I, I just did the the swim and the bike training, and uh, and only ran in those races. Okay. And how long how long were you injured for? So it uh, ended up being around nine months, I think. So so I got injured just after I did that one nineteen half, which was in March, and then it was only in December of that year or so that I started to slowly be able to to build back up and starting with like fifteen minute run walks that I could do without pain, and twenty minute run walks, twenty five minute run walks, and then slowly but surely building up to continuous runs, and and only in in January, February, did I start to actually do run training that uh, we, we, where the distances or durations were even like one hour. And so, so it took me probably the better part of a year to get back to more or less normal training. Okay. And uh, did you go to a doctor or something to see that? Or are you just trying to 
medicate yourself and hope for the best no 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 i i don't hope for the best (laughs) (laughs) i i always my my philosophy is to always uh do what you know that you can do but then when you don't know what you're doing you you have somebody help you with it whether whether it's somebody you know who can do it for free or is it somebody that you pay to do it so i went to a lot of doctors and physiotherapists and uh and i end up it was uh it's always a bit of a that's something I found with injuries that you, you need to find uh, the right person to help you. And uh, and I ended up going through a couple of physiotherapists and, and an orthopedic doctor before I found somebody who could actually really help me. But but then I ended up finding a really good physiotherapist and, and uh, the rehab process really started properly from there on. All right. So when, you know, you mentioned that running was something that grew on you gradually. So what was it about it that made you start liking it more as you did more of it oh that's a really good question i mean i think for one thing the uh, i i think running is such a pure sport in many ways that anybody can do it you just need a pair of shoes and uh, it's uh, it's also uh, it's a it's a personal challenge i think it's you against yourself more so than than anything else even at the highest level if you can't beat yourself beat your own self-talk your own brain telling you to slow down you're not going to beat your opponents so so i think there and there's a rawness to it that i really enjoyed but then there was also that's when i started to get uh, drawn into the science of endurance sports training and started uh, started reading a lot about that and, and educating myself in the science of endurance sports training and uh, and that also grew my interest a lot when I started to learn about why run training is structured the way it's structured and, and what we're trying to accomplish with training. So the more I started to read and get involved with that side of things, the more I also started to enjoy using myself as a guinea pig for, uh, for basically using my learnings. Hmm. All right. So you get into triathlon after this injury and... Take us from there. What happens next? Yeah, so so I would have thought that I would uh, I would do the the cycling and the swimming as cross training, and then get back to running and and keep running. But I found through that process that I actually really enjoyed the variety of of having different disciplines to train for, even more than I had enjoyed running. So so when I was healthy, even long before that, actually I knew that I was pretty stuck in triathlon already. I just wanted to be able to to run train as well as part of that. So, uh, so when I was back to full health, I I started to do the same sort of uh, I guess process that I had gone through with running and started to try to teach myself everything that I could about uh, about triathlon training and start to uh, to train and uh, and try to try to get faster. So, so I did that and I I guess I I was uh, I was pretty quickly hooked with that and trained with a lot of structure and uh, and quite a lot of ambition, ne- never the ambition of becoming a professional or something, but just the ambition of becoming my best self and the best triathlete that I could could be. Right. So, so yeah, I started to, to improve relatively quickly from there and participated in, in races and, and had some some decent results fairly quickly. So which, which sport out of the cycling and swimming did you find harder coming into it as a runner? Uh, definitely the swimming. Yeah, I yeah. had absolutely. I mean, I I could I had no water anxiety or anything like that, and I could I had no problem really covering the distance. But it was just that my technique sucked, so so I wasn't hmm. fast at all. I was very slow. Yeah, I think I think all three of us got into the sport through running. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty much. Charles, was cy- was cycling your weakest leg once you got in, or was was it swimming as well? Uh, no, in my case, uh, I think both swimming and cycling, I found them to be, I thought it was only swimming because I know that I'm slow. But once I went into the races and I realized that I was clocking seven hours of cycling on an Ironman and uh, and I compare myself against the other people, I was like, hmm, I think I'm pretty bad at cycling as well. <laughs> okay. Yeah, that's interesting because even for me, when, when I got into triathlon after running for a couple of years, it was just the swimming that gave me the most trouble. I guess it's just because that's more of a technique-based sport, right? And with running and cycling, it's more of endurance. And you can just, like, work your way through it, just work hard and just, you know, do the miles. But in swimming, it's it's about the technique. And until you learn that, you can't really do it. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. So did you have a coach at that time? Or were you doing all the research on your own? And 
Yeah, I, I had a coach when I was running, uh, or at least a mentor. So sort of a co- not not a complete one on one coach the way I I had later on in triathlon, but but a mentor definitely. And but then as I got into triathlon, at first I didn't have that, but then because I was still studying, I was uh, I didn't have any money uh, or anything like that, so so I couldn't really invest, uh, or I guess I could have, but I I didn't yet realize how important it is to prioritize your investments, right? So. So, so that was, uh, I guess, the the issue more so than not having the money, but but I got got a coach pretty quickly. I think it was uh, it was a year later after getting back from the injury or so, maybe a bit more. Um, so, so a bit more than a year into my proper triathlon career started that I got a coach. Mm. Okay, and yeah, you progress pretty rapidly after that. I mean, you finished in the top ten at the Finnish sprint distance national champs and. Then you did the same thing in the Olympic distance the next year. Yeah, yeah, and and to be fair, like Finland is not the most competitive uh, country in triathlon, so I, I wouldn't have done that if I would have been living in Portugal at that point, because here it's much more competitive. But but yeah, it, it was uh, still a very good, uh, I guess, proof of of progress, and uh, and definitely my times were were improving improving a lot, and uh, the hard work was paying off. Yeah, I think I think I think in Finland maybe this is a theory that I have. The reason why it may not be or may not have been in the past so competitive, you know, is I'm guessing you have to be like completely insane if you want to train for triathlon on an on a outdoors any time between October and May. Yeah, that. So I think the weather can be yeah. That would play a big role. Yes, I I remember. Uh, runs that I've done in in minus twenty degrees Celsius and uh, just putting on my my alpine skiing gear to to be able to survive a short run <laughs> in that temperature. Exactly. I mean, people here in the UK they complain a lot about the weather and say, guys, I mean, here it gets the coldest in London, maybe minus five. I mean, like crazy. I mean, imagine people in Canada, people in Finland. These guys really suffer. So, so yeah. 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 Yeah, and, and but but uh, there there is a an upside to that which which I see now as a coach living in Portugal where the weather is great and but still having uh, quite a few athletes that I coach in Finland, when I hear their stories about how they worked their way through the most horrible weather imaginable and uh, and they do that week in week out, like I I get the sense that wow. My athletes, they are so much tougher mentally than I am now because I'm getting used to to this fair weather training, and uh, and they are working really like every every day is survival when they go out to train. Of course. So was was the move to Portugal primarily just to get into better weather and so you could train more, or what was the reason behind that? Well, the main reason was that uh, along the way, so so this was by now I had uh, graduated university and started working at. Uh, so I, I was uh, studying engineering and uh, did uh, graduated as an engineer in uh, medical technology. So I worked at a startup in Helsinki for uh, a couple of years, and uh, and I was doing uh, I was starting to do coaching alongside that work and alongside my training. And at some point, I just realized that something had to give. That uh, yeah, I was too stressed out with everything that I was doing. I didn't have any time. My so- social relationships were sort of uh, getting uh, being put on the back burner, which I I didn't really like to see happening. So uh, so I realized that that I had to like make a choice, and I really loved the coaching that I was doing, and I could see that as being something that I would really like to do for the rest of my life. So. I decided to give it a go and uh, put in my notice at work. And uh, actually, well, before I did that, I I was planning the the whole thing and and started to research where I would go because as a, a coach and I coach remotely, I could be wherever I wanted in in the world. So I started to research where I would want to to be living because I knew that uh, like even if I had stayed in engineering, I wouldn't have wanted to live in Finland the rest of my life for various reasons. Like I like to see see different places of the world and I feel that I'm fairly international if you will so so I started to to basically research my options but uh, pretty quickly came for various reasons to to settle in Portugal and definitely climate was one of the main reasons but uh, there were other things including that Portugal is a country that you can still 
uh, get by in really well with just English because the people here speak English. So mm. Spain, uh, even though that might have ticked all of my other boxes, it didn't really tick that box quite as well as Portugal did. So uh, so there, there are multiple factors, but but I had the option to go anywhere I wanted. And um, I it came down to doing a lot of research of the different possibilities and, and then Portugal came out on top. So... So I just moved here uh, and I had never visited the country before, but it just seemed that it would be a good fit and it's turned out that it was. I really like it here. And I think maybe because uh, the fact that it's also an EU country made it much, much easier in terms of paperwork as well, no? For sure. For sure. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think the, you know, just the place you live, it plays such a big role in everything. Like I was just telling Charles earlier about how I may move to a different city within Australia because of the climate and everything. So, yeah, I've just been thinking about that recently of how the location is so impactful on your, just your life in so many ways. Yeah, and, and as you mentioned, I just moved apartment and that may not seem like a big thing. Like I moved less than five kilometers, I think. But actually, it has a huge impact for me in that, well, one of the things is that I now, instead of living in a shared apartment with just one tiny room, which was really impractical for triathlon purposes, uh, I now have a, a bigger apartment where I can have a, a separate room that is my my office where I work and also where I have my indoor bike trainer and can I can make it my paid cave. Nice. But also I live four minutes by bike from the pool rather than twenty minutes. And if you add that up over the week when I swim four or five times per week, that's suddenly a lot of time. And if especially if you add it, add it up yeah. over a year, how much time did I save? It's uh, these small things make a big difference. Uh, so so for triathletes especially that are time crunched it's uh, it's very important yeah absolutely so you get into coaching and you are like you've said you're very data driven scientifically approaching the whole coaching so talk to us about that what does it mean to be a data driven coach and what is your whole coaching philosophy well i i, I would no it's it's not that's uh, that's only one uh, part one piece of the puzzle right. it's uh, it's basically one uh, one third of the equation. I, I think that uh, uh, you should use as many inputs as possible to to get the the best sort of decision making process. And uh, data and science, they that's I, I think that any coach worth their salt, they should know the science of uh, of exercise physiology. Like that's that's the fundamentals. But that doesn't mean that every training decision is has a perfectly reasonable scientific uh, foundation. Because there are other things that play a role. For example, what is the experience of the coach? Do does the co- has the coach seen that a specific type of training seems to work really, really well for a lot of athletes? Well, then that's worth as much as anything. And the same thing if the athlete says that they've always benefited from doing this, this, and that that type of training, then that's something that the coach needs to consider. And if they say that they feel really, really bad doing a certain type of training, and, and they don't feel that they're responding to it, they feel that they get overly fatigued without getting the benefits, then uh, the coach needs to uh, not necessarily take it uh, immediately at face value, but definitely consider it very strongly regardless of what they might think about that sort of training process. It might have the most solid scientific evidence in the world behind it, but if the athlete as an individual isn't benefiting from it, then it makes no sense to do that type of training. So so I, I just think that my philosophy is to use as to to gather all the possible information that you have, both from the the scientific background of, of exercise uh, physiology and metabolism, uh, and best practices from from coaches and practitioners, and of course be very very uh, communicative with your athletes and uh, and have an ongoing di- dialogue on a daily basis with the athletes and and check in with them and, and see how things are going, get feedback, give feedback, tell them how to execute the workouts better and better uh, by the week so that they can get the most out of their training. So so it's uh, a pretty multifaceted, uh, I guess, approach, and, and that's what I believe in. So when you're giving feedback to athletes, is it how much of the science do you make them or want them to even understand, or do you just always condense it down to simple terms? It, uh, I don't need them to understand a single thing as long as they do the workouts properly. But for some athletes, it, this is where individuality comes in. Some athletes really 
are motivated by knowing why they're doing what they're doing and some don't care at all. So so that's uh, where the approach is vastly different depending on what type of the, of athlete that is. So so I might have a coaching call with, with an athlete where we talk for half an hour about some specific detailed process about why they're doing a certain type of, of, uh, of training. Whereas with others, it's more about talking about do this, do that, do that very practically based and, and not at all about why they're doing what they're doing. So, so that's sort of the, the principle there. So you would say that the people you take in uh, as your apprentices, if you want to call them somehow, uh, they don't have to fulfill a specific role so they can come from any walk of life and have any motivation whatsoever uh, to do triathlon, whether that is qualify for Kona or whether that is just, you know what, I just want to stay fit and uh, enjoy time and do some race stations. Is that the case, uh, you, you would say? Yeah, yeah, that that, that is the case. Uh, all, although I also, with time, I found that, uh, that uh, there are certain types of athletes that I uh, really enjoy working with the most. And uh, and as I have the luxury of, of really not, not having, having, having more more demand and supply in terms of athletes i guess that's something that with time is also changing a little bit in terms of of how i select athletes i i have been more selective later on with uh, with which athletes i take on to to fit the types of athletes that i really enjoy working with the most but but for sure i enjoy working with all types of athletes and and i think it's very very educational for me as a coach as well to work with everybody from uh, from beginners to to coda qualifiers yeah yeah absolutely so as you're coaching these athletes and helping them improve, you're also, you know, doing your own thing, obviously, along along with that. And you've had, you recently just jumped up to the 70.3 distance, haven't you? Yes, yes. And right. you won, you won your age group in your first 70.3 distance. Yeah, yeah. So talk to us about that. Like, how was that transition from the Olympic to 70.3 and how did you make sure that it would be a strong one? The reason it was a strong one, I think, is that I had absolutely no expectations and no pressure because I I made a decision to race that uh, race. It was Ironman 70.3 Cascais, so the Portuguese 70.3 race that we have. And I made it on a whim on the night of, uh, of the Olympic distance uh, national championships uh, in 2018. So, and that was only four weeks out from the race that I signed up for the 70.3. And before that, I had my horizon had been focused completely on that race and that so that Olympic distance race alone. And I didn't know what I was going to do after that. But then uh, at the end of that race, I was pretty motivated and high on the endorphins of the day of uh, of the race because it was a, a pretty good race for me. It was not my best race in my life, but but I was happy with it. It was a good performance. And uh, and I ended up uh, signing up on uh, that night for the seventy point three just for fun because I knew that that in two thousand nineteen I would want to to give the seventy point three distance a real crack. So I thought that well I might just get some uh, some early experience of it. And uh, and I actually raced that race on a road bike. I didn't have a triathlon oh, bike. Wow. I had one earlier on in Finland that I sold when I moved to Portugal because I couldn't bring two bikes and I knew that I would be focusing on draft legal racing in Portugal. So, uh, so I did it on a road bike with just uh, clip-on aero bars, uh, but it was uh, home soil. I knew those roads pretty well. At least most of the course I knew knew very well. So, so I enjoyed that. And and my training, I think, uh, triathlon training. I I don't think that if we consider what optimal triathlon training is, there's not much of a difference for sprint distance athletes compared to to Ironman athletes. It's it's very very similar. Mm. It's only the last the last period before a race where you might be more the differences might be bigger because you're doing the most race specific training, but but still like the the training that I had been doing for sprints and Olympics set me up really well just to be a good endurance athlete and a good triathlete. So uh, and that and that combined with having no pressure, no no expectations at all, that uh, really helped me get everything that I could out of myself on the day and. And I had no idea that I was. I of course I knew that I was very well placed, but but I had no idea if I was winning or if I was fourth or fifth in my age group or where I was placed. So I only found out like an hour after the race that I had had ended up winning. But uh, yeah, I just went went for it and, and had a great great race throughout. So so uh, 
but but I, I really think that it it came down to that having no expectations and no pressure that really helped me have a fantastic day. Like that that day was uh, along with one marathon that I did earlier, the, my best marathon, which was a two fifty in Prague. Those two days are the two days in my life that I felt that everything just clicked mm. in in an endurance event, and I got everything that I could out of myself and and had a really fantastic flowy performance. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think you you killed it, and uh, I mean, just the first one and just win the age group. It was uh, pretty impressive. I think some people uh, might say, you know, the the fact that you came from these national championships, national championships make it make it sound you know, like you had to make your way up and qualify and work very hard to to make to make it to those uh, Olympic races in in Finland. Whereas on the other side, you say, okay, well, this is a Ironman seventy point three where everyone. Uh, even uh, I don't know any any person or a, any age and any sort of fitness level can just sign up and turn up on the on race day. So you say some people can claim, oh well, uh, you will have a, an easier way on 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 the seventeen point three. But to be fair, I mean the amount of competitiveness that I see from age groupers, uh, I think we all know that. Like uh, in recent years, it's just gone to the roof. I think what you say, you know, that the difference maybe between training for an olympic distance and a 17.3 there's no real difference on only until the the last days before the race and and i think that showed very well for yourself on that race no yeah 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 basically you if you want to be one of the competitive guys in your age group you you need to you, you need to maximize your 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 perform your capability as an endurance athlete period and uh, and that requires quite a lot of of training and, and also quite a lot of of hard training so uh, it's of course individual what you do, but whether you are going for that sprint or that Ironman or that seventy point three, you're you're going to be doing a lot of training and you're going to be a lot of be doing a lot of hard training if you want to to perform and be at the top of uh, of that podium or even near to the podium in in any competitive race, even at the age group level. Yeah, yeah. What amazes me most about that race of yours is your swim. I mean, you did what twenty eight, twenty nine minutes. I, I was just I was just under twenty eight. I think it was like twenty seven fifty nine or something like that. <laughs> That's like one what one twenty per hundred meters or something like that. That no no it's it, it's it's high one twenties. It's something like one twenty seven or one twenty eight. Even let's just call it one thirty per hundred meters for that swim. That's still a massive improvement from where you were when you first started, and it wasn't too much of a you know like. A timeline between the the when you started to that first seventy point three race. Just a lot of work, a lot of work, a lot of time in the pool, and and it's funny, but uh, I still feel like a very slow swimmer because even though uh, at an age group level in seventy point three, I think now my swim is probably uh, just as strong as my run. Really, like I, in that race, actually, I think my swim and my bike and my run were all fairly equal i wasn't the fastest in any one of them but i was in the top four or five in all three in all three of them uh in my age group so but anyway like it's it's just been a lot of work and i think that's uh it's entirely possible to improve a lot in swimming but it just requires a lot more work than people think and a lot of swimming and uh one thing that definitely helped me a lot has been uh here in portugal to to be swimming with people that are faster than me in uh, mm. in the local tri club because I'm, I'm one of the slowest if not the slowest here in our in our squad so uh, so it uh, gives you definitely a lot of humility to keep working harder and harder and harder every day mm. I, I should also i should also say with the swim that i definitely i've had good coaches throughout like even before i had a triathlon coach when i started swimming i did use a friend of mine who was a swim coach so i uh, she coached me in my swimming and and I took a lot of one-on-one lessons with her. And then throughout my triathlon years, I fairly regularly invested in video analysis of my strokes. So, so I've done a lot of investments on the coaching side, um, a lot more than most people do, I'm sure. So And that has definitely helped my progress a lot. Yeah, I don't think it's possible to progress that quickly without that. Mm. No, I don't think so either. Like for example, when the, with your athletes, I'm, I'm sure that you have a vision of uh, of how many hours each of them put in, and you can also see uh, the the results on the races, right? Uh, obviously, before at the start, you said that you you had a moment in your life and you were juggling with too many things, and uh, you had to make a decision, so you just decided to quit your job, move to Portugal, have your 
let's say your life uh, move around triathlon so you can dedicate yourself more time to it and definitely that helps so do you think that the more time you put in the better results you have or do you think there's a there's a cap around that risking burnout so how do you think about that i think it is uh, largely true but i think you need to be uh, you need to be very deliberate with how you work up to increasing volume and for sure like the rest of your life is going to play a role of course uh, if you only have so many hours in the day and the only thing you can cut out is sleep then that's not going to work you know uh, but uh, but for somebody that has some hours available then yes increasing training volume is going to probably be the, the best way to to improve more as a triathlete but but still that requires some a careful consideration of how to do that like how fast can you increase training volume in what disciplines do you do that like how much can you increase your run volume compared to your swim volume and and also do you need to what do you do with the intensity when you increase volume uh, can you keep up uh, the same amount of intensity or do you need to do a sort of a trade-off with intensity when you when you increase volume and and realizing as well that it's not a quick fix it's something that needs to be built over years and years really and that's uh that's the the time it takes to to build an endurance base yeah so talk to us about you know scientific triathlon when did that you could call it um a brand when did that begin how did that begin and you have this amazing podcast right now which is called that triathlon show um which is like charles mentioned one of the top podcasts in triathlon right now so talk to us about that whole business and um brand side of things how did that develop yeah uh, so first of all charles was entirely right that 100 i stole that name from that 70s show which i loved <laughs> to watch i knew it i when, knew when it I was a yeah so so that brand i think it started in 2015 and i started it more or less as a blog where i was writing about things that i was learning in my early days of coaching and also researching uh, researching things just reading a lot so so it was more of a like a blog newsletter and that's that's when i started a brand registered a domain etc uh, and uh, and i guess i registered it as a business in uh, 2016 as in still in finland and uh, doing it as a part-time job uh, alongside my my main work so that was when i was getting a bit more serious because i was uh, actually doing the coaching but i was doing it uh as an official job and, and actually uh, like, you know, paying taxes and that sort of thing. Uh, so, so that was when it became a bit more official, but uh, then the, the next milestone was definitely in the, the second half of 2017 or the autumn of 2017 when I, when I quit my job and moved to, to Portugal. I guess the podcast started uh, earlier in 2017, in, in March 2017, I think, or February, actually. So mm-hmm. we're going to hit the, the two-year anniversary pretty soon. That's awesome. And now, but, uh, but yeah, that's, that's been a, a, not a like rapid growth by, by no means. It's been more of a consistent, uh, consistent progress, consistently slow progress, but, uh, but it, it is uh, definitely growing and growing and growing and keeping keeping growing and i'm i'm super happy with with the reception that it that it gets and and one of the greatest things about it is really getting to talk to so many so many great people in the in the industry and, yeah. and learn from them at the same time as uh, i i learn a lot just like the listeners learn because i i get to interact with these great coaches and researchers and and other people uh, when i interview them and and even when i do my solo episodes Sometimes I do them more or less off the cuff, but uh, a lot of times I get like really difficult and good uh, listener questions that I I actually do a really a ton of research and I need to think and be critical and and go go back to the the research papers and the books and and try to seek out the answers. So so it's a a great uh, I guess a great tool for me as well to keep myself sharp and and on my toes. Mm, yeah, I love that. So having spoken to all these different experts in the field, whether that be of nutrition or coaching or whatever it may be, like, what do you make of, you know, everyone have their own different perspectives and philosophies of how they go about doing things. So what do you make of the whole, I don't know, like the whole, you could say triathlon training zeitgeist right now? I, I guess my, my main 
the, the main thing really is, I think everybody agrees that consistency over time is the most important thing. And, uh, and usually uh, the people that can be more consistent, but be more consistent with a higher average workload, uh, which would be uh, the, the volume of trading and, and to some extent the intensity of trading, but intensity can also be a bit of a dangerous uh, tool and a double-edged sword. So you don't want to do too much of that. Uh, I, I guess that's, uh, that, that's one of the main things that you want to strive for to consistently put in uh, a fairly high workload. And so, so it's fairly simple when it comes down to it. But then, of course, there are uh, nuances to get into that uh, are not by any means unimportant. But, but I do think that, uh, and that's something that maybe my, my myself is also very guilty of in my podcast that I don't really distinguish enough between what is the cake of endurance performance and what is the icing on the cake. If you if you know what I mean, that <laughs> I can have one episode that is about like really the basics, the simple stuff, but the simple but important stuff. And then the next episode is about some really interesting strategy that uh, may be quite useful, but mm. it's it's not the fundamentals. It's not the, the cake itself. It's the icing yeah. on the cake. But then, then people might be more excited about that that new strategy and get a bit of shiny object syndrome. And, and that is, I guess, one of my challenges to how to make the distinction between between those different layers and hierarchies of uh, importance when it comes to to trading so uh, so but but with that i i don't want to dismiss the importance of also chasing marginal gains i mean i think that there is value in that but but i think that perspective is very important and uh, and having a clear view of what the hierarchy is and what the priorities are and, and what the the 80 20 uh, of uh, in terms of prior prioritization is going to be as well so is there anything in particular that you're sort of geeking out about right now in the whole data science area? Yeah, so actually just uh, very, uh, this Monday actually, by the time that we record this, so that would have been the 18th of February, I think, I interviewed, or not interviewed, but I released uh, an episode, an interview with Sebastian Weber, and uh, that interview was about how the interaction of uh, maximum aerobic capacity VO2 max and maximum glycolytic capacity VLA max, uh, they, the interplay of those two variables, they, they sort of are responsible for 98% of uh, your power at functional threshold or, or anaerobic threshold. And that's something that not a lot of people are aware of. Uh, so I started talking with Sebastian over a year ago, I think, and started to research that. So it's been a long time in the making. And, and, and that's something that I'm really, really getting into a lot. Like these last few months have been more and more about that and doing specific testing with my athletes as well to, to do not just FTP tests anymore. We're getting away from that, but testing, uh, testing more physiologically. And, uh, mm. and I, I guess that, that physiological aspect of, uh, is, is something that I'm interested in, but also things like, I guess the field tests and the, their accuracy and their relevance in general is something that I'm interested in. Like whenever one of my athletes goes and does a lactate test, I'm always interested in doing a field test right around that same time to compare uh, standard percentages that we use in field tests to see how well they match up. And for example, the way I look at things, I'm getting away from using 95% as the coefficient for correcting a 20 minute test to a threshold because that just overinflates the threshold of the athletes quite consistently from from what I've seen. So so those are some things that I'm I'm quite excited about at at this point in time. Awesome. So like how do you you know like as you're speaking here I'm sure many people they would have heard of these different terms that you're talking about but they aren't sure what exactly they mean or how they relate to training. So how do you in your podcast how do you keep it simple but still informative in a way that people can just understand what you're saying uh yeah that's a great question and and i think i do because i i get a lot of feedback from people that say that uh that i do make it clear but but i actually i i don't i think it happens a lot of it happens unconsciously for for whatever reason i i don't know and i, and I guess i'm pretty lucky in that way that that for some reason i seem to have a have a knack for for making things fairly simple but then also, just having the 
I guess the the approach that some of my episodes are not going to be for beginners; they are going to be more mm. advanced and relevant for yeah. for the advanced athletes. And I don't even want the beginners to care or worry or be concerned about those concepts. I mean, they can listen for sure, but I don't want them to to at all be concerned about those sorts of things. Whereas other episodes are more geared towards the beginner, and maybe the advanced athletes are not going to be that interested and not listen to those episodes so much. But uh, yeah, I, I guess that's another way to uh, to think about it that that the audience will also self-select for episodes hopefully and that i will try to introduce mm-hmm. the episodes as such yeah well given the success you've had i'm sure you're doing something right all right so tell us what, what's next for you do you sort of have your sights on doing achieving something in the next few months whether that be for your business or for your racing yeah, so for my racing, the the big goal right now, I'm just hoping I can shake this uh, uh, this flu that I'm suffering from. As you can hear, I'm pretty conge- uh, congested right now. Uh, but uh, my my next uh, big goal race in the coming months is going to be Challenge uh, Lisbon. Mm-hmm. So that's a 70.3 distance race, and I've I actually have set myself a time goal for that race. So I want to go sub four hours ten minutes in that race. Wow. Uh, so, so that's uh, that's going to be be my main goal for the next few months. But the big goal for the year is definitely the the seventy point three World Championships in Nice in September. Uh, so there, I have more of a, a position goal, uh, and it's my first World Championship. So, so I'm trying to not, and it's in Europe, so it's very competitive. Uh, so, so I set my goals at a top twenty five, and uh, I think that should be realistic. But I didn't want to set anything much higher than that because i think it's uh yeah i i just don't know if that's realistic with the with how competitive it's going to be hmm. well we look forward to following your progress there okay and as we're wrapping things up we have a final few questions so what's the message you would want people listening to take away from your story i think persistence like that's something that i've shown persistence and uh, uh and trying to be yeah, per- per- persistence really, because I haven't been consistent at all times due to injuries. Uh, so uh, in in running, especially there, but but I've always done my best, and I've invested in going to physiotherapists and orthopedic doctors, and and not given up even when I was out for for nine months, and and at some point in my triathlon career when I've had bouts of overtraining or non-functional overreaching as well, and and have had setbacks of like kept falling back into those traps i had a lot of mistakes but i I stayed persistent and uh overall like in the the big scheme of things things have been going well even though there have been uh, periods where things have been going pretty steeply downhill so to say Uh, so so it's not all uh, it's it's very much a roller coaster and uh, and the other thing is what we talked about a lot that i think that people should remember that if they want to become faster that the most important thing and it's fairly simple. It's that consistency, consistency in applying workload over time and not overestimating the importance of intensity and not underestimating the importance of training volume. I like the last phrase, yeah. Okay, and are there any people or brands that you'd like to give a shout out to? Yeah, so uh, so I'll give a shout out to, definitely to Roka who is, uh, and Precision Hydration who are the current sponsors of uh, my podcast. Uh, so they're great, and I worked with both of them for for a long time. Also, Ventum, they're not currently sponsoring the podcast, but I have a re- really good relationship with them and, and ride on the Ventum, Ventum bike. And, and as for people, uh, my the triathlon coaches that I've had, uh, Simon Briley and uh, Andre Campos, who's uh, our local squad coach here. And uh, yeah, I think I think those are the those are the the main brands and, and people uh, here that uh, that I want to give a shout out to. Yeah. Great. Okay. Before we ask our last question, tell everyone listening where they can find you online and follow your journey and the podcast and everything. Yeah. So the website is scientifictriathlon.com and uh, you can find the podcast there through the venue. And also, and if you look for the podcast in your podcast app, then just uh, search that triathlon show and you will find it. And uh, yeah, that's uh, that's mainly it. I'm also on Facebook, uh, Scientific Triathlon, but uh, but really the, the podcast is uh, the absolute best way to follow me. That's where uh, where I am consistent with putting out content and two two episodes per week, every Monday and Thursday. Awesome. Okay, and our last question is: Why do you try? 
it comes back to a bit to when you asked about uh, why I started to really like running, and and I think that that personal challenge and uh, the uh, a bit of the rawness of the sport, although I don't think that travel is quite as raw as running, but but I guess uh, the the challenge is uh, more multifaceted with both the technique and the endurance and trying to put in a lot of work but not getting overtrained and injured and that sort of thing. It's it's just such a fascinating challenge and and I I'm somebody who can't resist a good challenge whether it's uh, uh, whether it's sport or or business or uh, just reading a book and trying to figure out who the villain is <laughs> or anything <laughs> like that. So uh, so I think I think that the it's it's a puzzle and and I really enjoy trying to solve that puzzle one piece at a time. Love that. All right, Michael, it was awesome having you on the show. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you for having me. It was great. And I'm sorry for my internet, but but hope that with, with some minor editing, this will, will come out all right. Yeah, so I've been an expert at this. So yeah, no worries. <laughs> <laughs> Not even close. <laughs> all right, guys, this is the moment you were waiting for. After listening to the podcast, you finally, you've got to the point where you really want to listen in this triple C C-Cube community comments with Charles, and you know it. So this is the place where you can actually leave your comments and you're going to hear it once a week. We're going to pick them out, the funniest ones, or the, the ones we like, or the ones we don't like, actually, we also do. So you can all uh, understand and see how, how people are talking about us. So for today, we're going all the way to the Netherlands. This review is as follows. It took the hosts a couple of episodes to get into it, but they are improving each episode. I especially enjoyed the episode with Stephanie. Such an amazing story and a lesson in humility for everyone who's in good health. I'm looking forward to many more inspirational stories. This one comes from Tim Van Doon. Hopefully I'm pronouncing your name right. That is uh, from the Netherlands. Thank you very much, Tim. It was really appreciated for that uh, comment. I know that we took a lot of, uh, not a lot, but uh, yeah, a couple of episodes to get it was the first podcast for the three of us, so definitely, but I'm really glad that you, you like it. But anyway, you know, guys, you can find us on Facebook, you can find us on Instagram, you can find us on Strava, and we have our own website. I mean, if I was saying, saying this in 1995, you'd say, oh, they have a website. I mean, it's www.humansoftriathlon.com. And as well, remember, you can leave your reviews because next week it could be you, especially take a look into Apple Podcasts and iTunes to leave your reviews there and we'll definitely pick them up and uh, and we'll do a magic and random selection for next week okay so for now thank you very much and peace out thanks for listening everyone thanks for being a part of this humans of triathlon community hope you're enjoying the show and the other content make sure to join us again next week here on the hot podcast where we'll bring you another amazing guest and story from this audrey but extra audrey world of triathlon Until then, everyone, keep trying.